0: Local recordings, that's new. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Well I haven't lined up the... on. Yes. <laughs> you can.
1: Hey guys. Very, very professional start. Very professional. <laughs> hey guys, Craig or Crafty from uh, Craftworks Distillery and this is Aussie Craft Distillers shooting the shit. This is our little uh, podcast where we have a wee chat to people in the industry, whether it's distillers, cooperers, uh, whoever's in, in the industry and uh, so tonight our guest is Dave Pierce from Five Nines down in South Australia. Why am I looking up? I should be looking up. I don't know. Yeah, down here, right here. Down, here, just down here. uh, Now now I can see you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what was going on. It's very different to the setup I've got in the shed. Anyway, Dave, (laughs) how's it going,
2: guys? Yeah, going well. Going really well.
1: Good, excellent. All right, so Dave's with us from Five Nines. We've got the Todd up in the top left-hand corner. G'day, Todd. Yeah. How, how are you? Oh, fantastic. Very good. Yeah. You are not in your usual
0: den. No, no really. I, got, I got kicked out of my den because my daughter decided to
1: move back into it. So it was uh, a short-lived man cave. But... Oh, wow. Yeah. Right. That's unfortunate. You only just set it up. I was getting so excited about down there too.
2: Mm. Anyway. i kind
1: of home
0: <laughs> away from home. <laughs> home within the home Home within
2: the home, yep
1: home Within home Alright, and then we got Luke I'm here, hello Luke's here, and I'm at Luke's place And we're going to do a shoot in the ship tonight That's the plan yeah. So, first things first um, need a drink So, yeah. um, currently I'm on a A Riverborne Down there Riverborne Identity. Nice. And for a change, having it with a... Oh, yum. Yeah, that would be good. Long race soda. Yeah.
0: Mm. yeah. I managed to find it at a local bottle. i like,
1: I'll take that. It's hard to find. It is hard to find. It's good stuff. And then after that, Luke's got a bottle of this, so I'm going to switch over to this. Ah, nice. <laughs> And I don't think I've actually tasted your whiskey, Dave.
3: Get out. No, you, uh, well, you have before well, it was whiskey. Yeah, right. You're, yes, you're right. I've, yeah, you I've have. tasted you, it in
1: you, the Bond store, but I don't think I've actually ever tasted it um, in a bottle as sigma whiskey. So I'll be tasting that tonight. So I'm looking forward to that. It's all right. Yeah, I'm sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what are you drinking, David? Uh, I'm
3: drinking a relatively new release called our Hills Cask, which is oh well, there we go, um, which is actually a blend of uh, predominantly three different styles of barrels. So it's a vatted release. So predominantly bourbon, a para, and a really interesting barrel out of um, Clare Valley, which used to have altar wine in it. So oh, sweet yeah. red wine used by the Catholic Church for Holy Communion.
2: Right. So there's
3: a. So there's a winery up in the Clare Valley called Seven Hill Winery, and and they make 95% of all the altar wine for the Catholic Church and and have done for four generations of of Catholic priests or actually Jesuit priests. And so there's this just amazing history in this winery. And um, Mm. we managed to secure... A bunch of um, these altar wine barrels. Some of them had had ultra wine in them for the last thirty or forty years. So. Oh wow! Wow! Um, so just incredible depth of flavour coming out of these, and sort of this real luxurious sweetness coming out of the barrels. So, mm. um, so we have blended some into this batting um, and we've also done a single cast release um, with the ultra wine as well. Um, and it's yeah, it's a really good drop. Wow! Yeah.
1: That's something something a little bit different for sure. Oh,
3: yeah, really, just something i think i remember to talking to you
0: at the whiskey live was it um it might have been and i think you were you were you were telling us about the ultra wine um uh, variation and that was one of the ones that stuck with me from the day thought that is an interesting story
3: yeah look it's this it's an interesting story and just a really interesting whiskey um so and it's interesting because we've got three different styles of barrels. we got some that was aged in American oak, some that was in, um, you know, French oak, and then some that was in this really unusual one, which our cooper hated when we took him to him. But it was this German oak. And I'd never even heard or, or seen German oak before. And and when we uh, took it up to Andrew Stiller, our our cooper up in the Barossa Valley, he, he sort of shouted and goes, oh, my God, what have you brought me? He said it's horrible for me to work with. He said it just leaks like a sieve, and so I think he took ten barrels and managed to make three for us. Oh. the whiskey is just ultimately unusual and really interesting. So, mm. um, we will release some that's come out in this German oak within the next year or two. But um, yeah, we sort of we had them made up into. Um, Couple into two two fives, and then one into a three hundred liter barrel. So um, mm. yeah, we'll we'll see how it goes over the next couple of years, but it's it's tasting delicious already.
2: Mm. Very
0: nice, very nice. So how long have you had barrels laid down for
3: now? Uh, we started laying barrels down early in 2017. So we sort of started distilling um, very early in 2017, and and sort of had our first barrels down by I think March or Marchish. So mm-hmm. we sort of started off with mostly small format hundred liter barrels um, did some twenties for um, you yeah, know private investors and such um, but the majority of our stock to begin with was all hundred liter barrels and that was just predominantly where we we're situated like we this distillery started off in my garage at home a two car mm-hmm. garage turned into a distillery. Um And, you know, the Bond store was a shed down the bottom of my hill. So, and it, you know, <laughs> we, well. we, we wheeled every barrel down on a sack truck. And so a hundred litres was about as much as Steve, as I, Steve and I could manage, especially mm. in the wet, you know, you'd be slipping and sliding with this, um, you know, converted um, hand cart that laid down on its back with four <laughs> wheels that you could wheel it down the hill. Um And then. Steve built this uh, sort of hand crank that we could lift the barrels up and, and put it up into the uh, – and stack them up in uh, on stillage timbers. But it sort of – it got us started. So, you know, we managed to fill up this sort of uh, 9 by uh, – what was it? 9 metres long by 5 metres wide shed. Um, we managed to fill that up over about two and a half years um, and then started started stacking, stacking barrels and moved to a larger format um, mm-hmm. where, which is where we we moved barrels down to Steve's cabinet making workshop. So we had that registered as a bond store. We filled barrels on the back of the Ute and drove them straight down, and then lifted them off with a forklift down at down <laughs> at uh, down at his cabinet making factory, and and stored them there for a couple of years. And then and then finally, we've now sort of about 18 months ago, we've moved out of the garage and we've rented a space at the back of another distillery, Mad Monkey Distillery in Adelaide, who are a rum distillery. Right, yeah. Um, Alec and Scotty, great couple of guys. Um, Alec's a super talented um, distiller. And they had some spare space, um, which had just been vacated by a barrel broker. Yep. Um, And uh, we took over their space. So um, you might remember Round Oak Barrels, um, Gareth from Round Oak. So he he was sharing their shed. Um, So he had a bit of a tough time during COVID. And um, yeah, moved out. And so we took over his space. So we've only got still a relatively small space. It's only 250 square metres, but we've been out a rampart production um, now. So we've sort of, we're brewing twice a week, um, sometimes three times a week. And um, the, the still basically runs 24 by seven these days. Um, mm. And have you changed?
0: Stick. So from when you were in your two car garage to now have you changed stills
3: no still the same still Um, it just runs a lot more frequently we did up the scale of our fermenters so previously we were brewing once a week on a on a Saturday morning um, because Steve and I still have day jobs so we would brew Mm. Saturday morning we'd start at six finish at six we'd do two mashes in a day um, in a thousand litre mash tonne you know we'd end up with about. Three, yeah, it's a big day, and then so we'd end up with about three thousand liters of wash, Mm. and then that would sit there and ferment for a week, and then I'd spend the following week um, distilling it all, and then it was just empty in time for the following weekend to brew Mm. again. So we just had this cycle of sort of constantly keeping those um, those fermenters full of wash, um, Mm. ready to ready to distill the following week. So it was pretty pretty busy. Uh,
0: What is your still?
3: Uh, a 1,000-litre pot still that um, Steve and I built ourselves. So, Oh, wow. Um, so we we started sort of looking around for stills in uh, probably late 2015 and just couldn't find anything without, without a two-year wait. And uh, so we said, well, let's, let's design one and build one ourselves. So Steve taught himself how to TIG weld copper and uh, both of us, rolled and beat and swore and burnt ourselves and whatever else over about
1: three months and 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 managed to make our stills so wow you're 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 very relaxed (laughs) david you're you're very relaxed and and i've known you a few years and it's it's fascinating because your story is yeah a lot of people would would be incredibly stressed because it's yeah i know how you started i know how you've grown and I know how you maximised utilisation of your space, and it was phenomenal what you managed to squeeze into your two-car garage, and it was just incredible. Um, let's go Let's go right back to the start. But before we do, didn't ask Todd what he's drinking. What are you drinking, Todd? Oh, yeah.
3: Um, I'm just going with the old... Uh, gospel. Gospel. Rye. Oh, yeah, nice. nice. I love that rye. Yeah,
1: yeah. I've been really enjoying it as well. It's It's got a real cold, cold tea thing going on. I find. Oh yeah. That
0: that, rye. I really like that. So. I I just added a bit. Sorry, I just added a bit of the, the long rays dark soda, to the five nines. That's so good.
1: Yeah. I'll try that shortly. That's a good
0: mix. Helps to have a good base. Um, The dark soda is quite nice.
1: So. Ah, Mr. Young's on. Yes. Hey, youngie. Uh, yeah,
3: Andy, how roughly. are you?
1: I him um, a phone call and a message or two. Uh-huh. Um, okay, let's, let's go right back to the start. So how did you and Steve meet and where did your love of whiskey come from and what made you decide to have a crack at it, making it?
3: Yeah, well, there's, there's three very distinct questions there. So Steve and I met through my son and um, our wives, basically. So our our two sons um, basically started kindergarten together. Our wives were, were best friends. And, and then so Steve and I just sort of got to know each other from through our wives and just, you know, liked hanging out. And then we both found that we, we enjoyed drinking and particularly enjoyed drinking whiskey. So it just kind of it kind of went from there. Um, so they knocking around as mates for oh, probably only about eight years. Um, I would say might be, might be nine years, but, um, yeah, actually it was probably closer to 10 actually thinking about it, hmm. but yeah.
1: An um,
3: yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, and I guess my love of whiskey, I guess it started, started young, right? I probably wasn't even of age and I started drinking whiskey because I just didn't like beer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the the old thing back in the day was, you know, you'd drive to the bottler, you'd take the P plates off the car, you'd drive through the bot- bottler and you three bottles of whiskey. it was one for me, one for my mate and one for the girls. Um, and just sort of gradually over over the year my taste matured as my budget allowed, right? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, you started off drinking as cheap as possible and then you gradually progressed through through the range of different whiskies and 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 yeah, your taste just matures and you learn more. And, you know, I think I actually learned more about whiskey after I actually became a distiller. I, um, it's, um, you, you just learn so much when you actually talk to people in the industry, talk to your customers, um, and actually get in and make it. Um, just, just learn, learn so much. I wouldn't say I was any sort of whiskey expert before I started making it, to be honest. Mm. I don't, still don't profess to be a whiskey expert. I just love making it. Um, it is good fun. It, yeah it's just great um and when, so, so did,
0: getting into the process of of uh distilling and starting up here and distillery, were there any um sort of influences that you could say yeah that's sort of the direction i wanted to head in
3: oh look it it started sort of As a bit of a, I'd I'd spent about seven years commuting backwards and forwards with my day job. So my day job is IT and I'd spent seven years commuting every week backwards and forwards from Adelaide to Sydney um, Mm. to work for one of the big banks. And I had a very senior role there and had just basically had a gut full of all the travel. And Steve and I had actually just come back from a trip travelling around Tassie on holidays with our families and we'd tried to visit as many distilleries as we could in a week without sort of taking away from the family holiday too much. It's a hard balance. And and I'd been sort of doing a bit of hobby distilling um, and just trying to trying to learn and just kind of... I, I really love the technical aspect. I mean, my job in, in IT, I've been in IT engineering for... 30 odd years or 35 years actually and just loved the technical aspect of distilling and sort of, as we toured around Tassie, I just looked at what these distillers were doing and thought, wow, these guys are having a really good time and they're making great booze. And it's like, I wonder if I could turn my hobby into a job. And sort of one night I was just sitting back in my, in my apartment in Sydney and You know, just sitting there alone because, you know, your family's back in Adelaide and um, you know, you can't go out on the piss every night. So I'm just sitting back and watching T V and just pondering and, and thought, I wonder if I could start a distillery. And so I just started doing some research and you know, just looked at the regulatory side of things and, you know, didn't really have anyone to talk to, but I just started doing some research and found there was a phone number you could ring at the ATO, so I rang them and um, you know, had a chat to them and they were super helpful and, you know, you got to do this and that and, you know, you need to write a business plan. And I was like, okay, all right. So I sat down and spent three months writing a business plan and, you know, I was just going to have a crack at this myself and then one night Steve and I were, I think we were about halfway through a bottle of Sullivan's Cove and, you know, that was back in the days when you could actually afford to buy it. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and um, I said, hey, Steve, I'm starting a distillery and, uh, well, my wife nearly fell off her perch cause I hadn't told her, but, <laughs> and Steve sort of, mate, you're not starting a distillery without me, let's do it. So I just sort of went from there and, you know, I showed him the business plan and, you know, the business plan was very modest, you know, it had us, had me sort of, you know, buying a hundred litre still and starting from there and, you know, producing whiskey <clears throat> at a very modest rate and, um, yeah, we we just, kind of, we just kind of built it from there. We, after about sort of six months after that, we'd sort of researched what we're going to do around stills. We, the ATO said we had to, you know, when we looked at the excise form, <clears throat> the excise um, to get our producer's licence, you know, you had to be able to show where you got your, your distilling skills. So we went and did a, we did a course down in um, uh, Redlands, which yep. is now Old Campton um so so Dean basically ran us through a course for three days i uh, I managed to negotiate a uh, a redundancy from from the big said bank and um part of their part of the redundancy package was um we will retrain you and so <laughs> Uh-huh. They, um, they, I think they expected me to do some kind of IT course, but I gave them a distilling <laughs> course down at Redlands. So they paid five grand for Steve and I to do a distilling course. <laughs> <laughs> I, HR just laughed their asses off. But, um, but uh, So we did We did the course down there with Dean, and that just sort of gave us a little snippet of knowledge that we could get started. And sort of then basically from that, we sort of just learned on the job, basically. You know, we built our mash tun, we built our build our still you know crafty saw the original um distillery set up in the garage and you know we had so little space that everything was on wheels except the still (laughs) including the mash ton because the rules were i was allowed to use the garage as long as my wife could get her car in there during the week (laughs)
1: everything
3: had to had to fit in half a two-car garage so you know our grain hopper was was built up in the rafters, and you know we had a had a set up to get the grain up there a bag at a time and yeah. it was just you know one of these things you you know the things you do and and i'm and I'm really lucky to have a business partner like Steve who is super handy yeah. he's a He's a cabinet maker by trade, but he's been building things all his life right he's 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 been self employed since he was seventeen and just loves to build stuff he can weld he can build stuff out of timber or whatever, so, um, and look, luckily I'm pretty handy as well, you know, my dad was a boilermaker and, and a tech studies teacher, so
2: mm.
3: I sort of learned to build stuff from as soon as I could walk, so, you know, it comes super handy when, when you own a distillery, because stuff breaks and stuff's expensive to buy, so you just build it yourself if you can, so,
2: mm.
3: um, yeah, but, yeah, and look, I am pretty relaxed crafty, I, I have a very stressful day job, and if I, I find if the stress gets to you too much and you worry about stuff too much that it'll just overtake you so I tend to be pretty relaxed I tend say so, yeah.
0: yeah, you're there
3: <laughs> otherwise it just takes over look I've lost enough hair already I can't lose anymore yeah. so there's no point stressing about stuff
1: That's a good yeah. outlook mate it's a very good outlook <laughs> so the business the, the business evolved um, and you know I your, I remember going into your bond store a few years ago at the, at the bottom of your, your property and you told the story how you rolled barrels down. And I thought, one day you're going to have to pull those barrels out. That's going to be fun. Um, oh. How was that?
3: And- oh, brutal, brutal. We still haven't got them all out. There's still 50 down there. So, look, Steve and I, and we've actually hired a young distiller now, Ben, Um and I'll tell you a bit of a story about Ben in a minute. But, um, yeah, luckily he's super fit and he's got a couple of super fit mates that actually like the challenge of moving them up the hill because, mm. you know, they're young, fit and um, just like the fitness aspect of, of doing it. So to to do three or four or five hours moving barrels up the hill, they go, oh, that saves us going to the gym. Yeah.
2: So,
3: <laughs> Whereas Steve and I, we'll do about two hours and we're just absolutely exhausted and can't walk the next day. But (laughs) anyway, we're in our 50s, they're in their 20s. So, um, yeah, but uh, look, it's literally you've got to get them up like a sled dog. So same device we use, which is a converted sack trolley. You tie a rope to the front, you put a barrel on it. One person puts the rope around their waist and runs up the hill and another person guides it. It's, uh, it's
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> you can keep that. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
3: it's hard work. Yeah, I can we keep but, that. That's. Uh, we brought. I mean, we brought a couple of hundred barrels up so far, and we got fifty to go. So,
1: yeah. It, it reminds me of um, when I when I first started. Uh, I wasn't brewing, uh, so I worked with a local brewer, and um, then uh, I wanted to move to brewing, and I moved quite quickly to brewing. And I was thinking, I've got no space for a mash tun. I didn't have a mash tun, and I thought I have no space for a mash tun. And Mark Burns from Burns Welding Fabrication said, "Mate, give me a boat trailer, uh, and we'll weld it up, and we'll put a mash tun on a boat trailer. We'll reposition the the axle so it can actually pivot, and you can pull it around. And so for yeah. well, for three three years." for three years i would i would pull the the uh, boat trailer in and out of my shed i I would i would uh do my mash and then i'd pull it out and i'd hose it down outside i look at it now and go that was (laughs) (laughs) was hard, hard enough just doing what i do now let alone doing that so yeah the things you do when you start when you, when you're you know you're, you're super high in motivation and and resilience and and you know, nothing's hard <laughs> but as as things go along things get harder and you look back at some of the things you do and you went it's just crazy isn't it
3: yeah yeah exactly it's uh, <laughs> it was fun at the time though it's sort of and it and it's great stories and memories about how you started the business right
2: it's, uh, it's exactly you
3: know, <laughs> i mean not all of us are lucky enough to sort of have buckets of money to just throw it a business and get it going so you know you, you make there with what you've got and 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 build it so and yeah. i think it makes it a, all that more rewarding when you actually hopefully one day will actually i'll be able to give up my day job and actually just uh, <laughs> <laughs> work in the distillery but yeah
1: it makes some money in this game yeah. <laughs> yeah,
3: well, that'll be nice too. But, yeah, it's yeah. starting that's to turn around. But. Bonus,
1: isn't it? What, making money, making money, you <laughs> know. You're still for the love. You'd, you'd like to think you make money at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's Dave? What's what's been your challenges in the in the early stages, and what's your biggest challenges now? Are, are they are they quite different challenges? <clears throat>
3: um, look. I think the, the challenge is always selling what you've made. Um, yeah. And that, that's even a challenge now. It's, it's sort of becoming less of a challenge. We're sort of getting a little bit more known and starting with, we've been really lucky that we've picked up some export sales um, into China and into Singapore, which has really helped us cash flow wise.
1: Wow. Yeah.
3: Um, and that sort of, that just came about from one of the whiskey shows actually in Melbourne. I met a young guy who happened to be a wine exporter, um, his, his business had died because he was no longer able to export wine into China. Um, and he just said, look, I love your whiskey. Are you interested in exporting it into China? I said, sure, let's talk. And he said, Oh, well, look, let, let me just do a small order to start with. I'll order 500 bottles. And I go, well, that's not a small order for us. That's, <laughs> that's <pretty cool."
2: laughs>
3: um, and you know, he sent he sent it to China and, um, And yeah, it was really well received and, you know, he's come back since and, you know, ordered a couple more pallets and so it's gone from there. And then he rang us, you know, um, a couple of months ago and said, look, I've got a mate of mine who's um, really interested in your whiskey in Singapore. Do you want to send a thousand bottles to Singapore? So we go, Mm. yes, of course we do. So, (laughs) you know, um, so we've just sent that off to Singapore. So hopefully it'll be really well received there. So yeah.
0: Wow.
3: yeah, so I think you know, hopefully it'll just let us get a bit more scale and and sort of pump more into production. I mean, I guess at the moment we're sort of we're still trying to scale the distillery from, you know, we're still quite labour intensive. Um, you know, we've only got um, um, a thousand litres still. We've bought all the copper and we've bought a we've bought a big boiler to be able to scale up. Um, so we've got copper to build a three and a half thousand liter, um, wash still. Right. Steve needs a bit more spare time to be able to build it at the moment. But, um, yeah, that's, that's the next plan is just, is just get to that next level of scale. Um, yeah, but look, s- selling is the hard thing, right. And finding a good distributor, we've been really lucky that we found, uh, we've been working with mind spirits co, um, out of Melbourne. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, just also just getting our product to where it was easier for them to sell. So, you know, when we started out making whiskey, we we deliberately chose a lot of different styles of barrels. And part of that was us learning a, how our sort of spirit aged in different barrels
2: yeah.
3: um, and which barrel it worked best with. Because some people's bar- uh, spirit works really well in red wine barrels. Ours doesn't. Um yeah. You know, and just kind of work out what we wanted to, what what sort of whiskey um, we wanted to produce. And then, um, and then I guess, so unfortunately what that meant is when we came to release our whiskey, we did, we only had very limited numbers of different types of barrels. And so we ended up doing lots of single cast releases. Yeah. And the distributor, you know, he loved the whiskey, but it was really hard to sell because there were only, you know, 110, 120, maybe 130 bottle releases.
2: Mm. And
3: so by the time he educated his salespeople and educated his customer about that particular release of whiskey, you know, the salespeople had to work hard to get it into, say, a whiskey bar and they'd buy two or three bottles. And then they'd ring back, you know, three months later and say, oh, can I have another three bottles of that? And it was, it was a release that was sold out by then. Yeah. And so then the salesperson's got to go back there and say, oh, well, here's a new three releases. Which one do you like? And give them tastings and all that sort of stuff. And it's really hard work for a salesperson. What a salesperson needs to, to make money is go and do a transaction, educate someone on a product, and then just getting pe- repeat orders. Mm. And so the Hillscast that I'm drinking tonight is that. So we've done about 3,000 litre. We've blended up 3,000 litres into a big batting.
1: Yeah.
3: And the idea is that we'll then be able to give consistent releases. We don't bottle it all at once. We just bottle it 800 bottles at a time. And right. so the idea is then be able to give consistency of product. And so once that, once that batch gets close to um, used up, we'll then blend another batch. We'll blend another batch so that it tastes very similar. Mm. And so... We'll still do single cast releases. You know, some of the casts we just open up and it's just spectacular by itself. So we're going to put that in a bottle, right? We're not going to we're not going to vat um, it with with others. Mm-hmm. But we're just trying to, we're just trying to get uh, some consistency in whiskey to make it easier for our distributor to sell and then get repeat orders. Um, yeah.
0: The planning so, must be quite difficult. To know it. Have, have that consistent stock to create your blend oh, yeah. it really is yeah it and really keep is that going over over
1: years well you're making those decisions that's the, that's the big yeah. challenge you're making those decisions years right. in advance aren't you yeah yeah, you...
3: yeah absolutely
1: yeah yeah no and I, we, I, and, and oh, sort of we
3: we deliberately built this blend based on what we thought we had the best stock of over the next three to five years so Mm. because we wanted to make sure that and we're hoping people like it and luckily so far people have from the whiskey shows we've gone to but um yeah we're hoping people like it because that's the majority of the stock we've got and so it's fortunate that we've built our our vatting around around that those um Mm. those those particular barrel styles
0: and that it, it, is sorry, and that is uh bourbon that is bourbon the hills and the altar Wine.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And look, there are there is a couple of other unusual barrels in there. There's a bit of there's a bit of Chardonnay barrel and a little bit of Tawny barrel in there as well, but they're they the three predominantly barrel styles in there. And it's mm. actually really it's a really interesting exercise for us to go through and actually try and build that um blend that consistency into a vatic. Mm. Um, It's actually harder than you would think. It's, um, you know... I think it would be incredibly difficult personally. And I think that
0: there's... I don't think there's enough appreciation of what goes into the work that goes into a vatting like that and creating that consistency uh, across years. To me, that is actually much more impressive than... I lay down this barrel it come out it came out really good i'm going to put that in a bottle um the the blending aspect there's a real art and science to that
1: well the challenge the big challenge with that is you've got to have the stock that's behind it, it right? absolutely it's yeah. uh, the Stock, the
0: planning the the, the yeah. foresight yeah the um the consistency of of of, of um of new make uh consistency of barrel it's it's uh that yeah
1: i've props to you for being able to achieve it are you well, looking at any sort of solera solera type uh approach
3: no so we're not um so it's it's all just we basically draw samples from probably 50 barrels at a time anything mm. we think you know ben actually wanders around the bond store and tastes probably 100 sure. barrels and he'll pick 50 that he goes yeah, that's actually a nice whiskey by itself.
2: Mm, Right.
3: We then line those up in 200 mil samples along a bench and then go, right, we need an element of this, we need an element of that, we need an element of that to give the base characteristics. And then there'll be some other oddball barrels. So, you know, there'll be some Chardonnay barrels or, you know, some Frontenac barrels and we'll go, "Mm, yeah, okay, we want to ring fence those because we'd like them for single cast releases. And then basically just start blending and going, and, you know, and then generally we'll, we'll do some things independently. So Ben will sit down and he might do two blends and then, you know, Stephen will come and at a separate time and he'll do another blend and I'll come and do another one. And then we'll all taste them all. And we go, all right, so this one is the closest to our sample, which is this is our last release of that, of that batting.
2: Mm.
3: And then, go okay what do we need to do what flavor is it missing and we, we take all three of our independent um, opinions and we'll taste it over a number of days because what we mm, find yeah. is you know sometimes you've tasted too many whiskies that day or yeah. I don't know you've eaten the wrong food or yeah. I don't know your palate's just yeah. fatigued from what for whatever reason you taste different things over different days mm. so just trying this so it's a, it's a bit of a not a particularly scientific thing but it's just Persistence around trying to production. go. Now I come back and go. Actually, this is yeah. very close. It's not exactly the same, but hell, we're a craft distillery. We're not producing, mm. you know, half a There's million liters Variation
0: away. allowed.
3: Yeah, that's right. But people still pick it up and go. All right, this tastes like the Hills cask.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah. So that's the that's what we're aiming for. I guess I guess our customers will be the judge of that. But um,
0: and then sorry, how do you go from? Like your 200 mil samples, where you're adding a, a, a couple of drops of this, a couple of drops of that, and you're blending it all together to then scaling that up to a thousand bottles.
1: Well, so, like so it, essentially it, it, it's not a one to one. <laughs> no, no, and just to, just to add to um, Luke's question so, are you, when you're doing it, are you actually basing it on full barrels or are you partially... Yeah, so- in no,
3: so, so essentially we are adding a consistent amount from every barrel right. with a view that then we yeah. will empty full barrels into that vatting. And what well, we'll end up doing is emptying that into, you know, three yeah. IBCs and then pumping it between the three IBCs to get 3000 litres. Mm. But what we find is not every barrel has the same amount in it. Once you yeah. empty it, the angels have taken more from one than the other. So we still then right at the end, once we've blended all of those barrels we thought were going to taste great together, we still then end up doing some adjustment. And so when we first did this this um, original um, vatting for Hills Cask, we yeah. actually started off with just mainly bourbon and a pera. And it tasted great when on the bench. And once yeah. we emptied all the barrels, tasting it's like it's just a bit flat. It needs something. It needs a little bit of sweetness. It, just need something. And so Ben found this altar wine barrel hiding at the back of the bond store that was, I don't know, three and a half years old in a two, two, five liter barrel. And we dragged it out and put a sample in there, and it's like that's it. Yeah. So out she came, emptied emptied that into the into this vatting, and and that's now the style. So Yeah, wow. Well, um have... Yeah. And now the reproducing, it's the hard bit, right? So yeah.
1: You, Todd, you, you're listening to this. It, it, it brings back that memory. We, um, we did a, a vatting on the bench and we came up with something which we were very, very happy with. So then we pulled it together in uh, an IBC, but we didn't use the exact measurements that we used on the bench because we had more in the barrel. So we thought, oh, we'll just, it'll be all right. We'll, we'll put it in. Then we tasted it and compared it to our reference, and it was it was different. And we spent quite a lot of time, about six months actually, chasing the IBC to get somewhere close to what was on the bench. We were very happy with what was on in the end. But that's why I asked the question about: Do you base it on you? decant your full barrels, or, or are you left with barrels partially full at the end?
3: No, look, yeah, it's a challenge. It would isn't be- it is, a, it is a real challenge and yeah, you've just got to hope that it tastes good at the end and if not, you then do some final tweaks and I guess luckily we've got quite good stocks. I mean, we work bloody hard in the garage, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, we managed to produce 40,000 litres of spirit in, in, in a two-car garage, just <laughs> working Saturday mornings and distilling every night of the week. So by the time mm-hmm. we sort of moved out of the garage and, and now into our, our current distillery, um We've, we've got some good stuff there. Um, so, yeah. One, now
1: sorry, I was going to say, one one of the challenges that, I, that I've learned over the years, and talking to other distillers, they, they say the same thing, is, and how do you manage it? I'd be interested in your take on this, is when you taste something in a barrel and it's on wood, it tastes a certain way. When you pull it out and you put it into a receiver of some sort, it changes. When you add water, it changes. When you vat it together, it changes. When you have it in the bottle and you taste it initially and then leave it for a couple of weeks, it changes. So you're making decisions on pulling vattings together, initially on what it tastes like in, in the barrel, but you know that that's ultimately not how it's going to taste when, it, when it's in the bottle. So there's... It, it, it's an adjustment. How, how do you handle that process, David?
3: Well, with a lot of patience. So it <laughs> it, it really is a, a, a bit of a journey over a, weeks or sometimes months. So sometimes, yeah. you know, Ben will pull samples out of the barrels and he'll put them into, you know, little 200 mil bottles and leave them on our lab bench. And they might sit there for a month or more. So it's already had some time to acclimatise to being out of the barrel.
2: Yeah.
3: And then when we do a blend or a vatting we will we will then sometimes leave them sit acclimatize in a in a bottle for you know another couple of weeks and taste it at different times over the over those couple of weeks and um you know and we will have brought it down to 45 and and you know let it let it acclimatize for for a couple of weeks and then taste it um so yeah look i think it's just patience you've just got to you can't rush these things you can't just empty it all out of the barrels and you know, do this vatting and then taste and go, Ugh, it doesn't taste good or it tastes great or whatever, and then quickly jam it in <laughs> bottles and, and whack labels on the bottles because you or your customer is going to be really disappointed. You've just got to, you've got to be patient. Yeah. You know, add the water slowly. Just do everything slowly. I think it's one of the things that we've learned is you've just got to be really patient.
1: Mm-hmm. You, mentioned, you mentioned something a little while ago about, you think uh wine barrels don't don't work with your your spirit? Um, well, particularly
3: particularly red wine barrels. Um you know, I think you know, we've we've sort of pulled out sort of big big red um Shiraz barrels out of the brosser and that sort of stuff. And I just found we ended up with a really tannic whiskey. Maybe maybe we didn't treat the barrels correctly, but yeah, we just didn't like the flavour. We we really Like the way our uh, our spirit particularly works with Chardonnay barrels, we really like the way, and we're lucky that we live in the Adelaide Hills, and um, you know we've got we've got some um, we've got some great um, uh, Chardonnay wineries um, in close reach. Um, Really like the way it works with ex bourbon barrels, um, and also some of the fortified. So um, been particularly happy with some of the barrels we got out of Clare Valley, like the, the altar wine barrels or the, the liqueur Frontenac barrels, um, that, that sort of sweeter style, um, fortifieds has been, um, has been really nice.
1: And you, you're getting them, um, recouped, toasted charred. That's. Yep. Yep. Yeah, so yep. You're yep. Going into wet are. barrels at all.
3: No, we haven't got into any wet barrels at all. We have seasoned some of our own barrels and then had them charred afterwards. Um, right. so, we, we got some white wine barrels fairly out in the piece when we had no money to go and buy really, um, or to buy sort of sherry or a pair of barrels or we just couldn't find a pair of barrels at the time. So we bought a couple of thousand litres of a pair and seasoned some barrels for two and a half years and then took them back to the cooper to be, to be um, toasted and, and charred. Um, but... Um, yeah, we haven't done too much of that lately because we've since sort of Steve spends a huge amount of time talking to local winemakers and trying to just find interesting barrels um, and when they're coming available. So he's he's got this list of probably 250, oh, sorry, 150 local winemakers that he talks to every year just mm-hmm. to see when they've got interesting barrels coming yeah. available. Um, mm-hmm. And we just find we have to do that. You know, the the barrel market is becoming so tight.
2: Mm.
3: And and we really like to know the provenance of the barrels. Yeah. So you know some of the some of the coopers, um, and I can see Young will tell you the coop the the um, provenance of the barrels, but a lot of them are, are quite cagey about it, or just quite frankly don't know the provenance of the barrel mm. um, because they're doing such high volumes that they just don't know where they got their barrels from. So, um, and I think we just enjoy the the working with the local winemakers. It's sort of a bit of a all of our suppliers we know really well so you know our malt comes from a barley farmer over on the york peninsula he takes all the barley down to cooper's malting who you know they've got a state-of-the-art malting facility quite close to our distillery Mm. um and then he takes all the malt back over the york peninsula and silos it for us but
2: you know Mm -hmm.
3: we can go and stand in the panic where the where the barley was grown and um, yeah, and, and they're just a great family to deal with. So, you know, mm. if we forget to order Malt and, and um, you know, which happens every now and again, and we ring them up and go, oh, look, we really want to brew tomorrow, you know, he'll send one of his sons on a ute and bring us a load. Mm. You know, it's, you know, if you work with any other supplier, if you work with any of the big multinationals, you wouldn't get that level of service. So,
2: um,
3: yeah. yeah. God, <laughs> Um, and the the, the winemakers, um, it's just great to work with them and just get first access to their really interesting and and their great barrels because there is so much demand and you know the guys like Archie Rose now are so big and are drawing on so many barrels um, yeah. from the South Australian market that barrels are just going to get harder and harder to get. So
1: yeah. well, you you mentioned that and, and I saw a post on um, on Instagram the other day. I think it was Tim Duckett. Saying that uh, old wood fortifieds are going to be pushing the three thousand dollar mark, uh, wow! Which and he said he's not paying that. Yet. So if, if Tim's given up on old wood fortifieds, three thousand dollars. I mean that's yeah, that's that's obscene. That's that a, is obscene. That's absolutely obscene. Question on the barrels: How do you thread the needle with wineries on uh, sulfuring barrels? Because as we as we know, winemakers will sulphur barrels, um, depending on what they're doing with it. How do you ensure you your barrels aren't sulfured?
3: Um, basically just Steve pesters them around the time he knows they're emptying barrels, so he keeps in touch with them, knows when they're emptying barrels. Yeah. We send a truck or our cooper sends a truck to the winery to pick the barrels up on the day they've been emptied. Yeah, they go no. straight they go straight to the cooperage and get the heads pulled off so they can dry out. Yeah, um, yeah. so you know, so they don't go volatilic, um, so yeah, it's it's literally just a timing thing, so
2: mm.
1: yeah, well, that's that's a that's a good one. Yeah, I know yeah. you're busting, you're, I'm busting. Busting. you're I wanna busting.
0: busting. I want to know. Go, I, go. I know about your cola finish,
3: how that came <laughs> about. Oh, look, it, it was just a bit of a a wild idea, Steve and I had. Obviously, I think we'd been drinking too many whiskeys one night, and we said, let's yeah. no try thing. putting. Why don't we just try and put some cola in, in a barrel? And so Steve sat one one day and just put. I don't know why he didn't just buy buy some syrup, but he essentially just <laughs> got a hundred odd bottles of Coke and put it into put it into a two two five liter ex bourbon barrel and let yeah, it. That sit was a for really
0: a... interesting Coles order. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
3: and this thing because. You know, the the Coke's fizzy. He put the bung in it and it just started oozing Coke out of (laughs) every orifice. The poor poor barrel was just, yeah, it was horrendous. But anyway, it's been, I think the the Coke was in there for five or six months. Hmm. And then literally we just emptied it out and filled it up with, um we'd had 200 litre ex-bourbon barrels that was about two and a half years old at the time and just put it into that cola barrel as a finishing barrel. So that was wet filled. Um, and um, yeah, look, it was a. I wouldn't say it's our best whiskey, but really interesting. It was just, it was just a, it was just something fun to, to muck around with. Yeah, um, yeah,
1: yeah. Lark, it, it Lark, exactly did,
0: sounds interesting.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say Lark did one with um Chinotto, I think it was, and uh, yeah, they've actually just released a second one, mm. which um, the tasting notes look interesting, same as your ones, the tasting notes. Well. Look- on the palate, burnt caramel, vanilla,
0: fairy floss, and oak.
1: Finish: cola,
0: <laughs> cola, and coffee. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: That's awesome. Uh, um,
0: so you've added gin into the range as well, and you've you've got a you've got a handful of different gins there. Um, was gin always in the in the plan, or?
3: Oh uh, look, it was thinking, always in my plan. Um, yeah, look, Steve's not a Steve's just a whiskey drinker. So whiskey was in Steve's plan. Gin was yeah. always in my plan, and so it took me probably about eighteen months to convince Steve that we should put some gin on the market. And you know, I I I do love drinking drinking gin. Yeah. Uh, or maybe I just do love drinking. But <laughs> the the um and so yeah, we we yeah we we just started uh, making some gin. It took us about twelve months or so to get it to get it. Some recipes we were happy with to release, but mm-hmm. um, yeah look it's been it's been really good to us. It really helped fund a lot of putting whiskey down into barrels um, mm. so and it's given us another whole market it's It's interesting we you're talking earlier crafty about doing markets and things like that, I think yeah. before the podcast started, yeah, and yeah, we find gin outsells bottles two to one for whiskey at the markets, yeah um, but you know, whiskey is obviously a bit of a higher price point, so it makes up for even though it's only selling half as much, it's still fifty percent of the revenue at, at mm. markets is whiskey. But gin's a really good seller, um, and we've found sort of having unusual um, gins really helps. So p- people have got too many dry gins in their bottle in their bar at home, and so by having um, <laughs> You know, some interesting ones that have sort of some fairly unique flavours and those sort of things um, seem to sell really well. So mm. um, so our one called Wild Citrus, um, which is a really bold Mandarin, orange, lime um, flavour, sells really well just because it is quite different to most of the others on the market. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah so mm. we've had to play around with a few other different ones. We've done a Pinot Gin, which was... Um, just came out of a friend of mine just up the road in the Piccadilly Valley, had half a ton of spare Pinot grapes. He said, do you want them? Can you do something with them? And I thought, oh, it's not enough to turn into brandy. So oh, let's let's um, crush them up and add gin to it and see what happens. And,
2: hmm.
3: you know, we then basket pressed it after it'd been macerating for a couple of months and it turned it into this really nice liqueur gin. So. And it's nice. been selling really well too, so. Now looking at
0: the wild citrus that you mentioned a moment ago, um, the bota- one of the botanicals that's that stood out to me that I haven't seen anywhere else is almond.
3: Yeah, it was a it was a really unusual one. And I think it comes a bit from from Steve's Italian background. He he really likes it um, armoured liqueurs and so he said, Well, I want to put some almond in there and and, mm. and look, the wild citrus was Steve's recipe formulation, so I just let him go with it. And and it actually works really well. Mm. Interesting. Very
0: interesting. Because, yeah, we, we certainly see a lot of the, the, um, uh, well, I mean, all, all the classics are in there. But when you look at the, your other, uh, the blue one, I've got what the name is now, where it's all the and Stones, yeah. Yeah, Sticks and Stones, very it's... Australian focused. Seeing an, an almond in there is,
1: um, yeah, that is unusual. And I have not seen that anywhere else.
2: Mm. Yeah. yeah.
1: What's, what was your approach to uh, coming up with a recipe with, uh, with gin? D- did you um, basically do it as individuals, um, distillates, and then blend them together?
3: Or- uh, yeah, look, we, we started we started like that, but got yeah. really frustrated with that and, and ended up just going, all right, what's some good base botanicals that we think should be in this gin? You know, put some coriander seed in there. You know, put... Um, Etc. and sort of just layer it up until we until we found something that worked really well. And we, we did that, first of all, in a little two-litre lab still and then made a gin that we felt tasted nice and then tried to scale that up into a bigger still. We You know, back in the day, we were using a 50-litre still. And we scaled it up just linearly and found that it actually, the, the gin that came out of it actually didn't taste anything like original that we distilled in the little two litre lab still and then it was a matter of okay what's what's different about it okay it's got too much i don't know cinnamon so let's make let's do another batch with everything else the same but with no cinnamon blend it together with the one you made before okay what's it taste like now okay oh it's got too much cardamom do another batch without any cardamom and in the end, after three batches, we actually, and we were actually tweaking more than one botanical at a time. We ended up with something that actually tasted like the original. Mm. And we were then able to just go, okay, take that recipe, divide, add the three three batches of ingredients together, divide it by three, and then you've got a single batch recipe then that is is repeatable. So, and that mm. sort of worked for us. So, mm. but it was yeah, it was quite tricky sort of scaling that up. Um, from your From your little one liter lab still, I mean
2: mm.
3: back prior to that we tried to get tried to get gin right, just trying to actually do all our experimentations on twenty liter batches, and we ended up with so much cooking gin you, know, <laughs> you, you, you could never use it all, which is when we scaled back to using a little you know two liter lab still so
0: <laughs> but, looking uh, at your your barrel aged as well i've seen other um Another uh, botanical I haven't I haven't seen before, um, samphire. Oh, samphire.
3: So, that, oh, that was that was a really unusual one. So, the barrel-aged gin is a bit of a funny story. So, when we were sort of learning to when we we're learning to make gin and and doing all these experimental batches, we had quite a few failures, and so we tipped it all into a forty-four gallon drum, all the failures. Hmm. At sort of about a year and a half on. We tasted this bucket of failures, this this barrel of failures, and there was about 200, and 200 odd litres of it by then. It oh, wow. actually tasted great. Yep. It was something that we could never do. We could never reproduce it again. Yeah, yeah. It just had all these unusual single distillates and all sorts of unusual things in there. And one of them was samphire. So samphire, a- we distilled it, and we actually distilled it as a single. Um, a, a single botanical, just mm. to see how it would go, and we just we just did a small batch of it, so we made ten liters of it, but after mm. we distilled it, no kidding, it tasted like fish, like mm. the distillate tasted like fish, and I thought ah it's horrible, tipped it in the forty four gallon drum, but I kept a twenty a two hundred mil bottle of it mm. and left it sit there for about three or four months and I tasted it after three or four months, and it was the most delicious, crisp distillate, a wow. little bit salty, just it tasted like eating samphire. And it's like, damn, I shouldn't have blended that. I shouldn't have chucked it. All <laughs> <out>. but, <laughs> yeah, but, wow. um, yeah, it's re- it's really, yeah really interesting to, you know, what comes off the still. Sometimes you just got to let it rest.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'm just, I'm just reading up. Uh, a a description of what the Samphire tastes like because I've never heard of it and have no idea what it is and um, so it says uh, this is on a BBC good food uh, website uh, vibrant green stalks similar to baby asparagus with a distinctive crisp and salty taste
3: yeah I like salt yeah I like salt too
0: (laughs) but no very curious and how, how
3: did you find that it just oh look it, I, yeah. I don't know i think i was watching i was watching a cooking show on abc or something and the, <laughs> the chef was using samphire, and i yeah. thought that sounds delicious i wonder how that would work in a spirit so you know uh ordered some well, in fact i actually went down the beach and picked some but <laughs> we won't tell anyone that because it's not legal to harvest but um forage, forage, forage. i mean yes but um yeah, we um, yeah just managed to get some. I was actually over in a friend's shack at the time, picked some, brought it home, and um, and distilled it. Mm. And unfortunately, it was nasty after it was distilled. And because and mm. I'm, I'm not a seafood eater, so I tasted this spirit. It's like, oh, it was horrible.
1: Wow. But, um, yeah, just give, to- just give it time. Just give it
3: time, yeah. Yeah.
1: There you go. So you, you would say in uh, putting a gin recipe together, it is very akin to cooking. And using battery and and getting that that balance right, yeah.
3: Very, very much. Yeah. Look, and I'm not a fantastic cook, but I do love playing around with flavors. And you know, I've got a couple of good books that sort of help with flavor combinations and um, sort of trying to trying to find things that work complementary together um, that we've re- referred to at times. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's very much like cooking. But it's funny. Some things you distill and they don't taste anything like the raw ingredients. <laughs> so there's no. a bit of an art to it. <laughs> Definitely. A, lot of, a lot of experimentation and patience.
1: And that's it's, where the fun comes in. Yeah, so oh, I,
3: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Let, let's let's talk about the the realities of um, the industry and what, what's happening right now. And I'll kick it off by just saying in the last two days... Uh, just on Instagram, I've come across five new distilleries that I I don't know, never never heard of them. Um, and every day there's there's a new distillery opening up. When I started, there was sixty odd distilleries, and there's something like about what four hundred and four hundred and something four hundred and fifty yeah. odd distilleries now. Yeah. It's, it's a great time in Australia. It, it, there's a huge boom. There's, there's a huge thirst for, for new products in that. But are we in danger of being saturated to the point where people will turn around and say, not another one, not another gin, not another whiskey? Where do you where do you think the industry is going? And what Look, look, look maybe. Where do we have to be careful?
3: Yeah, look, I think we do have to be careful because... At, at some point, I mean, at the moment, Australians still drink, you know, 90 plus percent of imported spirits. So mm-hmm. I think we've we've still got a long ways to go to try and make a dent in those those international imports. But I mean, a lot of that is the the big whiskies or the big vodkas and those sorts of things that are that are taking the lion's share of that. Um, so it's going to be hard to take. Market share from that until we've got a lot of scale in in our distilleries. So, mm. you know, until we're until we've got distilleries that are producing, you know, hundreds of thousands of liters a week, I'm not sure how we're going to be able to compete with the price point of, of some mm. of the um, imported whiskies. Yeah. Um, because look, let's face it. There's not everyone that can afford to drink. Well, there's probably only five or ten percent of Australia that can afford to drink my whiskey. And there's probably only 2% of them that might even want to drink my whiskey mm-hmm. and yours or whatever, right? Because, yep,
2: yep, yep. right, it's, it,
3: it, I couldn't afford to drink my whiskey until a few years ago, I think. So, you know, it's, we've got to somehow get to, we've got to get the, those, get to that scale where we can actually produce whiskey. Well, mm-hmm. we've either got to stick to our niche and, and, you know, be happy with the volumes we're doing. Or we've somehow got a scale to a pr- to a price point that's going to then take market share away from the internationals, mm. and the wine industry did it, um, and the wine industry did it back in the '70s by essentially they couldn't get the scale from the Australian market, so they started exporting you know beautiful Australian wine into into Europe or um, into Asia or into America. And I guess use the volumes of those other countries, because let's face it, Australia is a very small country. Um, And so we've got to try and leverage the population of some of the other countries to try and, you know, even if we can only sell to 0.001% of China, it's still bigger than Australia, Um, the Australian market. So, you know, we've got to sort of somehow try and leverage those volumes of export, I think, to help each of us scale. To a hmm. point where we can then scale our operations, where we're price competitive in our, in our own country, to try and push out some of the export, uh, the imports.
0: Hmm. Um you know, I ideally we would be more price competitive locally before we have to worry about the exports, and I guess that's a, a an excise uh, issue. Um, well
3: not not really, though, because the imports pay just as much. Um, excise as we do so and look we've luckily we've got the excise rebate which has been a fantastic help so that's let us hire a distiller that we wouldn't have been able to otherwise and it's let us buy more equipment so excise in some ways is almost protecting us a little bit because Mm. if you can imagine if there wasn't excise on our product you could land a bottle of johnny walker in australia for probably two or three dollars a bottle by the time you put it through the wholesale chain they'd be they'd be able to sell it for maybe 15 bucks a bottle right there's no way we could come anywhere close to that when it costs us probably three or four dollars just to put labels and buy the glass let alone put spirit in there so Mm. in some ways the excise i think actually helps us um i know it's a probably a controversial thing to say but in some ways it sort of um actually shields us a little bit so yeah. Anyway, if,
0: look, it's, if it's used as a blanket, um, yeah, both local and, and internationals, if there was a import tax on that, um, rather than a excise on the production, um, that could make it a little fairer locally, while still very
3: very hard thing to do though. So unfortunately, putting putting tariffs on when you've got all these free trade agreements with. You know no, the UK yeah. and China and those sort of not places. In politics.
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, that's right. So, unfortunately, the government's no neg- Well, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know. They, we've negotiated all these free trade agreements, which helps yeah. us a lot with our our exports, etc. But mm. yeah, it makes like very it very hard to put tariffs on. Mm. Mm.
1: One of, one of the things you hear a lot um, is own your own area, as in you know, you you you'll get that local support, right? You'll get those relationships. And it's the way that it went in America, uh, with craft brewers, where there was a craft brewer in every every suburb and they had their local support and they and they they built their local business, which is the opposite of, of of export. But um to get established it is important to own your local area, isn't it? And, oh, and absolutely. identity yeah so what what advice advice would you give to someone new who's coming into the industry knows nothing about it
3: uh make sure you're well funded and make sure you've got a lot of energy because you're going to need it um you're going (laughs) to need both it's it it is a hard slog there's no doubt about it um you've got to be super enthusiastic get out there and pedal your product the hardest thing in the world is selling it Mm. like it's fun it's super fun making it It's hard making it but it's fun and but the selling part is super hard just getting traction and getting enough sales of your product to make a living um it really is um Mm -hmm. so either you know try and get a good distributor on board but distributors are really hard to find they do take a good chunk of your margin so make sure you've got a good pricing structure that you can afford to give up the, the appropriate margins to the retailer and to the, to your distributor. Yeah. Um, because if you haven't baked that in to begin with, then you're going to end up selling a product at a loss, quite frankly, because yeah. you've got to, you've got to make sure you have factored all of that stuff in before you start selling it. Even if you don't start with a distributor, you've got to think ahead and make sure you've priced it, priced the district distribution into your product. Um, because whether you use that to hire a salesperson to go and sell your product or whether you're appointed distributor to go and sell your product into into the yeah. retailers, either way, you need to price that into your into your pricing um, yeah. Right up front, if you don't, you know, and you go, "Oh, look, I can undercut the rest and I can sell a bottle of gin for forty five bucks, you might be able to, but you haven't left absolutely nothing. By the time you pay excise, put bottles, you know, make your product, you've got nothing left there for the retailer who wants 20%. You've got mm. nothing there for your wholesaler that will want 20 or 30% sometimes. So, mm. you know, it's you've, you've got to make sure you factor all of those things
1: into your, into your pricing structure.
2: Mm. Mm. Yeah, because if you don't,
1: then you've got to produce more volume.
3: Or you've got to adjust your price. And customers we hate adjust- it when you put your price up, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Um, yeah unless you unless you're sort of constantly changing your price or something but you know um, and I know some of the some of the distilleries have done it quite well they haven't they've sort of just every year they just index their price by you know three or four percent and mm-hmm. the customers are happy with that yeah. um, we haven't done that we've sort of stuck to the same prices um,
1: but um, yeah the market dictates yeah. what um how much importance do you put on relationships with bars? And I'll add to that: there's a high turnover of staff, so you're investing in relationships. But in the hospitality industry, it's changed dramatically since since the COVID times. So, yeah, how do you handle the the hospitality side of it?
3: Look, we. Steve spends a lot of time with the bars here in Adelaide, or he did up until probably twelve months ago. These days, he's just too busy with everything else going on in his life. But, cool. and we've sort of left it for our um, our distributor to handle the relationships with the bars. Right. Um, early on, we used to spend a lot of time um, working with the bars in Adelaide. Um, mm-hmm just because it was easy to, right? They, they're mm-hmm. on our doorstep. You're probably going to drink there anyway. So, you know, you go and, go and build a relationship with the Hanes and Coes of the world and maybe May and, you know, all those whiskey bars around. But um, these days, to be frank, we, we're leaving our distributor to build those relationships. Um, and he's selling our products and he's selling a handful of other products as well. So, um mm-hmm. And he's got he's got the time to spend. Unfortunately, Steve and I, or fortunately, whichever. Steve and I both still have our day jobs, so we don't have the time to go and spend every night of the week um, talking to bar owners, etc. So hopefully, hmm. in the next year or two, we'll be able to give up our day jobs and sort of focus on more on promoting our products, etc. But it's been it's been great to actually have um, young Ben on board as as our um, production manager and, and um, distiller to, to actually make sure we can keep up production because Steve and I were both getting tired.
1: So where did, where did Ben come from? Is he in the industry or has he trained up? No, he was,
3: uh, young lad, mate of mine from Alice Springs was coming down to Adelaide, said, oh, can I come and have a look at your distillery? And he said, oh, can I bring my son? And his son came along and his son came along with one of his mates. And, and his mates happened to be this hobby distiller, um, Ben, and he brought a couple of spirits that he'd made. He brought a gin that he'd made, and he brought a rum that he'd made. And we tasted them and thought, bloody hell, this kid's got some talent. And we just started him off doing bottling, and, you know, he'd come and help us mash in sometimes, and just working on weekends where, you know, maybe Steve was going to be away for the weekend, and brew day was too big for one person, so I'd get Ben to come around and help, and, and then when we moved out of, out of my garage and, and down into the distillery, um, we got Ben on full-time and said, look, I know you're studying. Do you want a job full-time? Do you want to just pause your study for a bit and come work full-time? And he said, yeah, absolutely. So,
2: hmm.
3: um, And now we give him a bit of time off to study. Um, he, was, he was studying winemaking.
2: Right. Um, yeah, right.
3: But, uh, and you know, he comes from a family of winemakers, but he's just super passionate and super smart so he's the sort of guy who you could put him doing doing a job and say look hey hey ben go go label these bottles here's how you use the label machine and most young guys you know would would have a crack at it and you know you'd come back and you'd look and you'd have a thousand labels put on crooked he comes back and goes, oh, look, I had to, had to adjust the machine because it started putting the labels on crooked, but I noticed it. By the way, I put these three bottles to one side because they had a scratch on them, you know. <laughs> Great attention to detail and the guy can fix anything. So he's a country lad. He learned to fix machinery as a young lad. His dad taught him how to do all this stuff. <laughs> you know, he built his still at home, all that sort of stuff. So he's just, he's, a, he's absolute gold, um, Mm. We can just set yeah, him, set him going. Careful.
0: Our uh, our viewers will probably uh, start trying to. Yeah, hands him. off, Steve.
3: <laughs> <I> can. <laughs>
0: yeah, no
2: turnips. No,
3: no mentioned <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, but
0: uh, yeah, it is a segue into a question we've had off the floor.
1: Yeah.
0: Which is
3: um, from a guy called Ryan over in, in South
0: Africa.
1: Africa. Ah, a new viewer. Yeah, yeah. A new viewer. What's he saying? Basically, m- most of us started off by home distilling, which, which um, is not necessarily true, but um,
3: a lot of us have. Um, <laughs> as a South African home distiller, how could he get himself a job in the Australian distillery industry? Oh, look, I, I would I would suggest get just starting to give some distilleries a call. Um, if you're in Adelaide, we'd love to have you on board. We we need another person on board now. So, but um, yeah, I would I would suggest just giving starting to give some of your local distilleries a call or, um, yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think, crafty? I mean,
1: yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, yeah, the distilleries, more and more distilleries, more and more expansion. There's there's demand for for. Um, For people that you know there's positions opening up left right and center um and a distillery nowadays is is not just the distillery it's the whole thing around the distillery you know there's distilleries that that have fully fledged bars and 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 events operations and everything else so it's it's uh yeah it's it's uh it's an attractive industry to get into and there's lots of opportunities but yeah i agree with you dave pick up the phone Your local distillery and say, "Hey, I've got the skill set and I'm keen. What do you reckon? And go from there. Obviously, a good sample will help. (laughs) Yeah,
3: yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the thing that attracted us to Ben. Right? He brought along good booze, and Mm. and then after we tried his good booze, then we sort of tried him out and just gave him some some trial work and just see could see how he worked. And you know whether you like it or not, I mean, most of the distilleries in Australia, you know, 95% or more of all the Australian distilleries in Australia are pretty small businesses, and so you have mm. to be a jack-of-all-trades. So yeah. you've might be, you you've got to be willing to roll your sleeves up, and, you know, one day you might be distilling, and another day you'll be brewing, another day you might be whacking labels on bottles and stacking them in boxes. Mm. But, you know, you go to Lark, you go to any, even the medium-sized or larger distilleries in Australia, the guy who's distilling is also whacking labels on bottles in the, in a lot of cases,
1: mm. and milling and going and milling. Well, keeping the snakes out of the shed. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Know.
3: Yeah, but um, you know, anything? one one day these distilleries will grow grow bigger, and you know, you might be able to have a full time job as a production manager, or, and not have to whack labels on bottles. But yeah. for the next yeah. few years, unfortunately. You, you're, you're in at the infancy of um of some of the, of the small distilleries. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, look, there's some great courses in distilling in Australia that may legitimise your hobby distilling as well. Um, so you know, go through one of the the IBD courses because, um, although they're, you know, they'll cost you a few bucks, they give you a really good um. Uh, I guess theoretical distilling knowledge and a bit of hands-on as well, and I think that that will stand well when you when you ring a distillery and say, you know, I've just completed the IBD course, blah blah blah, or you know, Adelaide University also run a distilling course, um, and there's a few others around. So um, if you want to sort of legitimise your your hobby distilling, um, then that might help you as
2: well, mm.
3: or might give you some other contacts as well, because half the half the guys that are doing those um, those courses uh, have a, have plans to start a distillery. So, you know, you build contacts in the industry through some of these courses as well, which I think you found as well, didn't you, Crafty? You sort of just gradually build your network of Australian distillers through through the people you meet.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Surround yourself with good people. Mm. Yeah. People you can pick up the phone and ask questions and... And admit things you've done wrong. <laughs>
3: yeah, absolutely. And the I mean the great thing about the Australian distilling industry is uh, there's not not many people I've found in this industry. You can't just pick up the phone and go, hey, I'm having a problem with this. You know, what how have you found a way to fix this? Or hey, I've run out of corks. Can you help me out? Or, you know, all these sorts of things that um people just help each other out. It's um it's a it's a fantastic industry to be a part of.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. No, it is. So we've hit the hour sixteen mark. All
1: right. That's the wrap up time the, We're, trying to, trying to, We're trying, trying to try to type it, trying to tighten up on time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the problem is we could go for hours and that just doesn't translate well into um, into download size. It's a weird thing. Um, yes. so if we have any final questions coming in from the audience before we do wrap it up. Um, I do want to put up, hold on, let me the, right? the website again. Thank uh, you. Obviously, you can buy everything there. Uh or get a private cask. How many yeah. of those? Oh. Oh, you get to choose your style and everything.
2: Oh yeah. Your private
0: casks. How many of those have you got down?
3: Quite a few. Probably forty or fifty. Oh wow. And, um, yeah, you can even come and fill it. You can even come and distill for the day if you want while we're distilling the spirit that's going into your barrel.
1: Come on, throw Todd under the bus. (laughs) (laughs) What does that mean? I don't
2: know.
0: I don't know. I don't know. It could be be, be anything. could mean... Todd could do the wrapper. No, it could be, like... Oh shit! Oh, oh
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't have them. In the the don't exist anymore. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> Just it's for the yeah. we'll bring
0: that up. Have you, uh, got, have you got any
1: questions, Todd?
0: Here we go. We've got a, a from Jonathan Harris. Very quick. Where to vision from here? So I'm guessing that's what are you seeing?
1: Where, where do you see
0: the industry going from here? Or
1: where do you see yourself going?
3: I mm, think. both. So I think. Well, look. From here, from, for five nines, I think we're hoping to that, you know, our recent sort of export expansion is going to help us expand significantly. Um, you know, actually having some serious volumes of sales starting to come in, we're going to use that to scale our production. Um, so we, we're not planning to pull any of the money out of the business. We're just going to plan, um, just use it all in, as expansion. So use it to fund more whiskey production, get more stock down, get a bigger shed because our current shed's so full we can't barely drive the forklift in it anymore um and you know hopefully we can eventually forward the block of land that we've got lined up for our cellar door so we've got a great spot lined up up in the Adelaide Hills um nice five acre block of land on a nice tourist route to to build a cellar door but we just need a a bit more money than we've got in our pockets at the moment <laughs> so that's where that's where we're heading um we'll keep we'll keep working on different gins um and yeah, just just keep enjoying it and hopefully give up our day jobs so we can actually just focus on this 100 that'd percent. Be, that'd be awesome Ooh,
2: hanging out for that one
1: crafty
0: <laughs> <laughs> you're just hanging out to be actually paid aren't you
1: well, paid would be good but yeah you can only push a you can so only. that's uh, it that's yeah. it That's <laughs> it.
0: Yeah. Uh, right. well thank you very very much for joining us this evening thank you everyone as well who's chimed in and mm-hmm. uh and watching away um i've been a little slack recently i'm sorry and i haven't put up all of our most recent episodes but you will until today Oh, okay Very until good. today oh, yeah. so a handful of new i won't say how many because it's embarrassing but a few new episodes have gone up onto um apple spotify um uh google play amazon podcasts and the website
1: and you a couple of weeks ago, we, we chatted with Holly Clintworth from uh, Bass and Flinders. Mm. And uh, big congrats to Holly. She's now yeah. been nominated, uh, voted in as the next president of the Australian uh, Distillers Association, ah. which is uh, going from strength awesome. to strength. So, I uh, got her angry yeah. aunt. Oh, you got her angry aunt. Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Angry aunt's good. I like that. I like we it. i so. finish off with one tonight, then. Oh, we've got a few that we can. Finish. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, we may have suffered for the making of that chat. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yes, Antler Harms. Well, please like and subscribe. Um, and uh, we, what have we got? You're going to say TBA, two, TBA two again, weeks. aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. We're getting,
1: we're getting um, into the. The, fi- the yeah. final, that'll be the last it's,
0: one, yeah. Year, yeah. Uh, our, our Christmas party, so to speak. Yeah, I think I know who it is, yeah. Yeah, so you've got to confirm, don't
1: you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course you do. <laughs> yeah, anyway. <maybe laughs> and
0: then does. after that, though, we don't have anything. Okay, so yeah, it is our last for the year. Yep. If we can line them up, I say we, if Crafter can line them up, and then, yeah, that'll be our last for the year cool you better you better do that yeah yeah <laughs> all right well, thank, thank you again
1: dave thank you very much all right. mate. That, was, good uh, that, that was good good relaxed Great. chilled and informative um that's what shooting the shit's all about mate absolutely awesome.
0: and right. uh i will uh continue to enjoy my uh batch of the the vr001
3: ah nice all right Good stuff, up.
1: guys. We'll see you around. Thanks. Go the rest Thank of your you
2: night. Cheers.
1: See you. Bye. Bye.